Welcome to another episode of Pod Like a Hole. Uh, this is your one of your hosts, actually, not the host. For crying out loud, my ego is not that big. This is Mark Branstead, um, and I am joined, as always, with the other dynamic duo. To my right, I've got the illustrious Stephen Earl Chambers. Why do you get all the love in the world? And to my left is the esteemed and professorial Eric Anderson. That's right. Anderson. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. So we've gotten to the nitty gritty of the fragile. And the next era, we're not going to do another five-year gap episode where we're going to do just trying to catch it up with Trent and uh, his wacky adventures in rehab. There wasn't much going on in those five years. There really wasn't. It wasn't as uh, illustrious or, I don't know, I've used illustrious now twice. <laughs> wasn't as, um, it wasn't as robust. Right. There, right. Wasn't, there wasn't any soundtracks. Wasn't, yeah, uh, I believe the remixes were minimal, of which we'll talk about them tonight. Yeah. The few that there are. And I think we talked about the deep in the last episode. We did. Okay. Yep, we did. So, I mean, uh, so we're going to be talking about, we're going to sink our teeth into with teeth. <laughs> yes, we're going <laughs> to we're gonna focus on 2005's release of With Teeth and uh, talk about the singles. We've and, got, there's three singles off the record. Yes. And then we'll go through, uh, we'll do a quick little discussion about the... Uh, what's that DVD called? Beside You in Time. I always want to say uh, All the Love in the World for some reason. Not just because it's on that screen. Sure. Uh, yeah. Beside You in Time. Yeah. Which is a fantastic song, and we'll get into that. But before that, there's been some news in news. the Nine Inch Nails world. That's right. In real, where I'll real cue the time. Air horns. It's, let's see, what day is it? Let's uh, timestamp this thing. It's uh, July, no, it's June 2nd, mm-hmm. 2018. Uh, a few days ago, the Cavs got screwed in game one of the NBA Finals. And uh, and how fast I edit these episodes, you'll probably see this in August. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you'll remember that. As hopefully LeBron hoists, by that time, has hoisted the Larry O'Brien trophy over his head. And that's important because they're the Cleveland Warriors and Nine Snails came from Cleveland, Ohio. The Cleveland Warriors, you say? Oh, my God. You <laughs> well, need to it may as out. well be one team oh. at this point. <laughs> All right. Oh, for shame. Um <laughs> Anyhow, I was going to roll with it, by the way. I, to, I'm glad he caught me. That, that was terrible. Uh, so it's like, that sounds like a team. Steve would have gotten some letters, I'll tell you that. The that happened is they did the great ticket experiment. And I say great the, by just like the Willy Wonky, Wonkiness of it all. I don't think everybody thought it was great. Oh, no. Have you guys heard? How, how do you guys, what have you heard about these tickets? What have I heard? What have you guys heard from me? <laughs> All right. So, uh, Steve, give, give the listeners a little context. I'm sure that if you're listening to this podcast, you know what uh, went down with the, uh, the, the well, new we, tour. I cannot, you know, we don't film these things too far apart. But did we talk about this, this thing in the last episode? No, no, we did not. Okay, good. Yeah. So everybody knows that. Trent Reznor decided that uh, scalpers are terrible in his opinion, and maybe he just wants more money. And uh, he made things interesting by having people interact with each other again by buying pre-sale tickets for the next tour that you could only get in person if you stand in line at the venue. So you couldn't even go to a uh, a Best Buy or a 
a Tower Records, like the old days. Right, know? yeah. So this isn't totally off-brand for him because he would do stuff over the years where uh, – uh, you know, as we were talking about beforehand, where, you know, he would, you know, like in year zero, we'll talk about kind of his little uh, social experiment that he did with people and uh, the, the spiral the fan club. Experiment. Yeah. <laughs> Not the network. Not the social <laughs> network. The social experiment. Um, anyways, so. Well, I, yeah, I, on this particular era of With Teeth, this is when... Um, and we'll get into more about the nonsense of this cold and black and infinite tour pre-sale that Steve was talking about. But this era of with teeth, uh, he was also really fed up with how Ticketmaster and scalpers were essentially pricing out true fans. And so he created a fan club called The Spiral, which they, for the low price of $25 for a standard membership, and you got some swag like uh, a T-shirt, um, some lithographs, uh, buttons, stickers, things like that. I don't the know. Spiral sounds like a uh, a underground group that Captain America would fight. Yeah, no, I mean it's definitely comic booky. I mean it didn't last too long. Um, you, so, but there was a premium membership, and that's what I ponied up for. Of course, it was, you did. So fifty five dollar, you get a you get a shirt. You didn't have kids then, so you could didn't do have kids then. exactly, and. Um, you get a shirt, you get a membership card, which I have somewhere around here. It looks like a credit card. And um, you got special entry into uh, the show. You got to pick up your tickets. Your tickets were printed on special nine-inch nails paper. Um, and, uh, God, there was something else. Oh, you got to, the ability to download this huge PDF because if you own this record either on CD or vinyl, there's no lyrics. the The liner notes, there is no liner notes. No, it's a no, really, yeah. it's super I don't minimal. That. Interesting. It's very minimal. And uh, as we'll go, as we'll talk about later, there was a reason behind that. But anyways, back to this pre-sale nonsense. Um, so in this go-around, you actually had to physically go pick them up at the box office that the uh, Nine Inch Nails were playing at. So that means, for our case, we live here in the Sacramento area, and the nearest uh, tour stop is going to be at Bill Graham Auditorium in San Francisco. So um, that required one of us, or all of us, because you were only limited to four tickets, and if you wanted to bring, let's say, another friend or a wife, uh, well, you're going to be out of luck because you can only buy four and your ass was going to have to stand in line. So that was going to be a two hour drive. Uh, there are some people who probably had to drive probably four or five hours. So I know two hours is probably nothing for some folks. But anyways, so you had, I think, a week or two week notice on this. I think it was two weeks notice. Yeah. Yeah. So you had to drive down to the venue of choice and stand in line. You couldn't line up before 8 a.m. Uh, we did send an intrepid scout down to experience this f- physical presale, I, and, I, I, and that was Steve. Yes, and I, I was happy to do it because uh, long drives with by myself to listen to music is fine with me. And also, you know, as <laughs> please don't take this the wrong way, it's also like ah, two hours later, you know, I don't have to chase my kid around. You know? <laughs> I feel you, man. I know. And you're, and you, and you're from San Francisco. You lived there like, what, yeah, six no, years, I lived, years? I lived in San Francisco for six or seven years. Yeah. And uh, it actually was near my old neighborhood. I drove down. There's no traffic that early on a Saturday morning. I found a place to park really easily. I went and stood in line. There, yeah, people lined up before 8, believe you do. I got there at about 7.30. And I stood in line from 7.30 to 10.00. Once it hit 10 o'clock hit, the line really moved, and I had my tickets by 
Uh, the biggest, funniest part about the whole thing was that it was supposed to be, you know, uh, make people get together and interact. And I, I talked to some people for a minute, just say, like, good morning. That was about it. And uh, we're all standing in line the entire time. Most people were on their phones. But these people that I was standing next to for an hour, I stepped out of line. I've made eye contact with these people and said good morning earlier. I stepped out of line to, like, assess the size of the line and then stepped back in line. And they all, like, turned around from me and they started muttering. And I realized that they thought I cut in line. They completely forgot that I was there earlier, which <laughs> just defeats the whole purpose of the whole goddamn thing. Were you wearing all black? I uh, know. That's probably the problem. <laughs> you think, you know, yeah, yeah. Either, uh, that guy doesn't belong here. He's exactly. a scalper. <laughs> yeah. But uh, they, they didn't really make a big deal about, about <clears throat> it, but I thought it was humorous. Um, and, yeah, I bought myself a ticket, uh, a, an acquaintance buddy of mine uh, who lives in Oakland. I bought his ticket. I bought Eric's ticket. And I bought one of Mark's tickets, and then Mark bought another ticket online when they went on sale again in a few weeks for his wife. And you and know, I how just remembered I left your tickets at home. I'll get them to you next time I see you. That's We've fine. Until December, which is yeah. about when this episode drops. I was thinking today, <laughs> I, put, I put them in a safe place, and I was like, I really got to make sure nothing happens to these things for six months. That's, that's tough. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so. Uh, Steve spent, uh, all in all, probably, what, four or five hours out of your a, day? It was a six-hour round trip, maybe. Six-hour round which trip. Which is a lot easier than some people got, I'm sure. So, face value of the ticket was seventy nine fifty or 80 bucks. Let's just round it up. And um, with no convenience fees, no box office fees or anything like that? Nope. Nothing. So, that's pretty cool. So, on the following, not the following week, but the week after, um, I went and bought an online ticket. It took me two seconds I did have to pay a convenience fee of $19, so that brought the ticket price up to $99. So if you factor in the breakfast I bought on the road and the gas, that evens out. That's what I was saying. (laughs) So here's my point. My point is uh, Trent Reznor was really trying to make this an experience where people were going out. And there was even some cities that were uh, setting up listening booths. And um, you got to hear the new record. Uh, I think the whole record. I think I, I think it was just the the new song. Uh, and then one song we haven't heard yet. Yeah, I did okay. not. I did not uh, partake in such a thing. Was that just, available? I'm then? not even sure. Okay. By that time, I just kind of wanted to get out of there. Yeah, yeah. You know. Yep. So you were done with your physical world experience. <laughs> yes. um, so oh, uh, big shout out to listener Paul. Uh, Hold on. Brennan, Brennan, I think, yeah. Paul Brennan, who uh, was one of our uh, street team out there, spreading the good word about the show, as he told us on our Facebook page. Which, yeah, uh, no, I brought some flyers down that I made before on my computer at work, and then I chopped them up on a uh, old chopping block at home. Yeah. Uh, they look like something that a sixth grader made. But uh, I was going to hand them out to people, real old school style. And then I realized, well, I'm in line, and I can't get you. Shit, I stepped out of line for, to, to, for 30 Two minutes, and they, they claimed I was a, a sneak-arounder. And so uh, sneak what I just did was I, I left them at the box office as I left on a little table that was sitting there. And later, uh, Paul shot a, a photo that he's like, ah, oh, look at these. So I'm sure a few other people saw them. Yeah, uh, that I, I do really enjoy the interactivity that we're getting on our Facebook page now. Yeah. I don't know who some of these people are. I don't know if they're circles of friends of yours no, or just no, people we've had, that we've had, picking up. We've, we've had pe- strangers we've never yeah. met. Yeah. Is, it's just well, fun. Well, that's great. Well, thanks a lot, Paul. We yeah. really appreciate that. Yeah. Um, Street team. So uh, my, the point of that, that I'm trying to make is that I feel that there should have been an option. There should have been an option for – because the this, this show is general admission – 
Maybe some cities are not general admission, and that gives the people that lined up at the physical presale um, better shot at tickets, a uh, better shot of a, a place and in, in where they uh, can view the show. But I mean, I bought them two weeks later. I didn't have to put pants on. And I just bought them. I didn't have to put pants on either. It was San Francisco. (laughs) Exactly. That's true. (laughs) So, I mean, the point that I'm trying to make is I understand, like, his his drive and crusade to want to prevent scalping. But this still doesn't prevent scalping because scalpers could easily line up alongside the fans. Or you could sell sell a physical ticket on StubHub. You can. Yeah. And so I, I don't quite understand, like, why this was initially the only option. Um, and I, I would agree with some of the internet comments made out there because I, cause let's say this, the show do, did so last. And in fact, Greg Walgast friend of the show who was not able to, um, line up and he tried to do the online sale. Right. No luck. Right. No luck. So, I mean, <sighs> I, I, when I hear Trent Reznor say, yeah, it sucks. Yeah. Sorry. You can't go to the show. I just, I'm, I'm not quite a hundred percent behind that, that idea as an artist. I would want anyone and everyone able to come and see me play. Yeah. That's just my two cents. I think you'd have more of a, well, man, it doesn't matter, but I think if, if they didn't release the tickets later, then they would, re- I'd really agree. The ones that were left online, you know, then it would be different. But I mean, I, I, I don't know. Maybe since it's so easy for me to do what I did that day, only because of logistics of where it was and where my familiarity with it, uh, maybe it didn't bother me as much. Yeah. Well, I got what I wanted, so of course it didn't bother me as much. <laughs> the pros and cons are valid. Um, and, you know, life events, you know, happen. That shouldn't necessarily get in the way of ruining uh, something you'd be looking forward to six months out because one thing didn't line up on a Saturday. I mean, I get that opinion. That being said, the, uh, you know... The internet was ablaze. So so many so many negative comments. People burning their nine inch nails collection <laughs> because they, because of this. The thing I'm is sure a little they extreme. They did, right? They no, no, really. no, 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 no. Of course not. No. But anyways, we're going. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, no, I, I look forward to that. Um, I can only imagine. I, I hope I hope the set list is uh, a good one. So I, have you heard uh, God break down the door? Well, that's the other thing that happened is the uh, the Bad Witch is coming out on a few weeks. Yeah. And uh, that's the third EP, which is now an LP, which was another funny thing where he said it was an LP and some fan online was arguing <laughs> yeah. with him about like an LP versus an EP. Yeah. And he's like, look, if you call it an LP, it shows up in people's streaming services more. Suck my entire cock. Which, <laughs> which is awesome. I love Trent Reznor. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that new song came out. What do you guys feel about the new song, which has a great title, God Break Down the Door? Um, I feel I, I feel like I want to reserve a, a deep discussion until the whole album comes out for context purposes. Um, uh, that being said, he was messing with the little noisy drum and bass drums. He was hit, hitting that saxophone that he does so well, um, and he was trying something new with his voice. Definitely, uh, definitely a bit of a Bowie uh, homage. Um, Black Star. Yeah, yeah, but I, but that doesn't deter me. I, I, it, I think it's a cool song. I really do. So that's my opinion. I hope the whole album's not not like that. Yeah. I hope there's some serious riffage going on uh, in addition to that. But it's a it's a cool song, an interesting one to lead with. But he always picks. Kind of a weird song to release first. Mm. It, 
Uh, uh, not always. Often. Often does. I would say that's accurate. I would say that's I would say, accurate. Say I mean, the hand, the hand that feeds is the catchiest song I ever heard in my life. Yeah, well, that, this whole album is is unlike some of his other stuff. I mean, uh, you're right because uh, 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 same with discipline off the slip. Discipline's very catchy. Totally. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess I'm thinking more of like like uh, the, his first song off the fragile was like a very interesting like not a poppy not a poppy yeah, song I mean, whatsoever. I'm kind of being contrarian. I just yeah. uh, the, the 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 zero years were the mo- very catchy years. But yeah, no, actually, the stuff off most of the EPs, EPs, all three of them is experimental in extent. Sure. I re-listened to them recently, and they all have very different types of songs in each right. one. Yeah. So, yes. so we'll, we'll get we'll get deeper into that when it comes out, even deeper into that. I. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you hate me so much. <laughs> I mean, I, I I wasn't blown away I, with uh, God Break Down the Door. Uh, it is very reminiscent of David Bowie's Black Star album. Yeah, and they covered a song with that album in their last tour. Yeah. Uh, uh, it wasn't bad. I just. It, I, I'm sure in the context of the album, I'll like it even more. Sure. Yeah, I think I. It, that's probably what I'm hoping for. Yeah. So, anyways, um, that's current events. Um, hopefully, I'll get this episode out so something else won't happen. It's not coming out for the new album, but uh, it'll be out one day. What, um, this episode? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I know. You got two more to come I got, out for this. I got some cranking to do. Yeah. I know. But I'm planning on a vacation. I think I'm going to have to bring my laptop and do some editing. There you go. Yeah. Uh, speaking of our show, my mother listens to it now. Just want you guys Hi, Margaret. That. How are you doing? Don't, don't ever censor yourself. I don't expect right. you to. I just... Yeah, yeah. It's good to know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I went, I, she told me that. I was like, oh, that's great, Mom. And I, it is. I, I, I like that. And then I went through and I listened to all our episodes again this last week to make sure there's something on there that's going to get me in trouble at Christmas. <laughs> just <laughs> the worst thing I ever did was badmouth the Sons of Anarchy. So, oh, you know. okay. There you go. I'm still, I'm angry with you with that. Yeah, not twice. (laughs) So the year 2005, it's been, what's... uh, Five years and change. It's been just... Since The Fragile came out. Because this record came out May 3rd, 2005. Mm -hmm. Um, The Hand That Feeds single came out probably in March, something Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Um, We saw them live on their little club tour before the record actually, I believe, came out. I want to say yes. I'll have to... I know we saw them, but I can't remember if it was... Before or after? There was the Davis show, and then there was the Reno show. They were back-to-back. Oh, okay. They were, yeah, one night after the other. The album had been out. Okay. When we, the album had been out. It had it been out? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Pretty sure. So old, old, yeah, TR, the old yeah, yeah. TR's life changed quite a bit. The, the Fragile came out in the 99. And then... Uh, they toured ex- pretty excessively for the... There was two yeah, Fragile tours, right? I think right? up to 2002. Yeah, and they, they were the... That was the lineup of the band that was like a hybrid. Most of the guys left over from the Downward Spiral, then Jerome Dillon. Yeah. And uh, so there was Chris, after- uh, Chris Renner was out, but had Robin Fink, uh, Danny Lohner, Charlie Clouser. And uh, yeah, and the, all those those guys went away. Oh, oh, God, all those guys went away except for Jerome Dillon um, yep. at this time. Yep. And uh, Trent Reznor, uh, who public battles with depression and substance really decided it was time to, to, to clean some things up. And I don't know the exact timeline of when this happened because it's not our business, but I mean, you could just tell when you see the guy in 2005 and he looks like he could 
bench press a Buick. Yeah. That uh, <laughs> really got his Henry, body in order. Full Henry Rollins. He took the Steve yeah. Rogers super soldier yeah. serum. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. so during this time, Trent sobered up. And uh, we're going to talk a lot about that tonight because you can't talk about this record without talking about that. It's just dripping with, with uh, allegories. As we drink beer. Yeah. I'm going to talk about that too. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I, the band didn't release a lot of stuff uh, between this and 2005. I, I, I I did a deep enough dive, yeah. you know, that we usually do, and yeah. at yeah. the time I can't remember anything coming out. As yeah. a matter of fact, I I never forgot about Nine Inch Nails. Christ no, but by the time this album came out, I was like, oh yeah, Nine Inch Nails. You know, it was like that. No, it was a big thing. Yeah, yeah it was like, <laughs> oh wow. I mean, I, I think we we kind of have expected them to be yeah, so like, kind of like defunct. You know yeah, what I mean? Because as opposed to the Fragile coming out, there wasn't a bunch of soundtracks coming out. There right. wasn't a whole bunch of releases in the meantime. There wasn't a ton of remixes. Right. There wasn't a Rolling Stone article just out of nowhere for some reason talking to Reznor. He was gone. Yeah. yeah. No, it's true. Yeah, and uh, kind of the difference between this one and uh, this five-year gap versus the first five-year gap between Darren Spiral and The Fragile. Is that Joe Vieira isn't here talking about it for two whole episodes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> By the way, that son of a bitch. Uh, you talk about all the trials and tribulations we went through to get these tickets. Uh, his sister-in-law works for some ticket company in San Francisco. And she just got him a ticket for free. He didn't even have to get out of bed or get or log online. Wow. Yeah. Nice job, Joe. Well, he'll be there with us though, so that'll be fun. Right. That'll be fun. Um, but yeah, the, you're right. Uh, I wasn't as in a fever pitch as I was of when the Fragile came out. I still was looking forward to this album, and I was still looking for any sort of information. But I was also at this point really deep into working at a record store, so this is where I was really starting to find other bands. And if you listen to our bonus episode, that's where I was really starting to then go backwards um, and to find the influences more so than I ever did because it was more accessible at that time. Um, but then when this album came around, yeah, I was very excited, um, but I wasn't necessarily – it wasn't a drought. I didn't feel like there was a drought happening, even though there was. I just I, – for me, I, I think I had grown up – this is also the internet age where I was uh, discovering other bands and going to see other shows. Right. And but so yeah. – And just like Trent Reznor was discovering LCD Sound System, which yeah. fully influenced this album. Um, <laughs> you think so. I know that there's – I mean okay, – okay. We'll get to two it. Songs. Yeah, two okay. songs. Two but, songs. But, you know, okay. yeah. Mark makes a good point. The remix album. Is, is that really at this – at this stage, uh, we are all in our mid-20s. I was 25. I was around 25. And we all worked at the record store at a certain point. I don't think I worked there anymore, but I know that we all worked there together at this point. All our musical uh, scope had been broadened. Yeah. So our bandwidth had been taken up with a lot of other stuff. So you didn't realize that this band wasn't doing as much anymore because you weren't paying attention to it. And then when it came out, you're like, oh, I'll get to that, but i got to make time for the new Modest Mouse. And I got to make time for being a big Tom Waits nerd now. And I got to make time for uh, LP or something over here. And so as opposed to when The Fragile came out, he was like one of like the seven other bands we really listened to. You know? Yeah, no, you're right. And so, uh, I mean, I'd still consider Nine Inch Nails to be my A number one like band of all time, even at that time. But I wasn't necessarily just waiting uh, with bated breath. Yeah, no, I, you know, I had yeah. to go see... Uh, I'm trying to think of a bad. I had to go see the Hoods at West Coast Worldwide that night, and I didn't have time to listen to Nine Snails around then. Yeah. yeah. Oh boy. 
unfortunate, <laughs> unfortunate times. <laughs> this is when uh, Steve and uh, sleeves on a shirt did not get along. Oh, please. <laughs> 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 exactly. <laughs> As he takes off his overshirt, and there they are. Yeah, there are those guns. <laughs> Some things never change. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you're, uh, Steve was uh, absolutely right. Uh, during this time, uh, Trent Reznor was suffering from massive writer's block. And uh, because he was drinking and drugging himself to death and he was very depressed, did not know really how to get out of that hole. And so he didn't really focus on writing new music from that's as memory serves. Um, I don't know who essentially got him back into the bug, but if I had to make any speculation just based off all of the ink that's been written and said about him, but it could be potentially Rick Rubin that helped inspire him and get him back on track. Um, Much like the friend he taught, they didn't ever record a lot of stuff together, but this is the second album in a row where he uh, influenced him to go 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 record some music. Kind so of thing. Ruben doesn't get uh, any produce, production credit on this, right? No. no. Okay. Yeah. Um. So the making of this record uh, came out in 2005. If memory serves, I f- did. The Queens of the Stone Age songs for the deaf come out before this record. Yes. Songs for the deaf came out in 2002 or three. Right. Um, so that record had Dave Grohl uh, from Nirvana and Foo Fighters drumming all over it. And I think, uh, and I'm going out on a limb here, but I want to say that Trent Reznor was inspired by that recording by the drum sound, because this particular album has a lot of, like organic analog oh, drum God. sounds. This album is, is the drums. This album is drums and piano. Yeah. So speaking of drum sound on this, um, I actually have a sort of acquaintance that worked as engineer on this album. And he actually is in the online liner notes for this. Uh, Chad Essig was a guy I went to middle school with and he's friends with uh, Greg Walgast. And he was working at <clears throat> Grandmaster Studios, I believe. Let me just. In uh, Hollywood. Was it Sound City? Because this one was recorded in Sound City. Well, like part of it was. Right. No. So what uh, Grandmaster Grandmaster Recordings was where Dave Grohl recorded his drum part. Uh So Trent would send him the tracks. And I know that, and I remember hearing about it at the time because Greg was living down in Hollywood and I'd I'd visit him and I actually went to the studio, but not during obviously this. And uh, they'd set up the mics and they'd record Dave Grohl playing along with the the album because he's almost on every track, right? Almost. Yeah, With the exception of one seven track, seven out of the eleven. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, so I thought that was kind of a kind of a little cool. So, you know, friend to the friend of the show. Mm-hmm. So yeah, was, cool. was involved in that. Yeah, after after the fragile was done, he went back to New Orleans and he was uh, just drinking and drugging himself to death. And he said, "That's it." And uh, it sounds like uh, he went to California or something and went through whatever rehab programs he went through. And that made this album's recording process, once he got that done with, the a lot, uh, a lot. I don't know simpler is the word, but there was a clarity there. And when you listen to this album, and when you watch the performances that happen on the following tour, you can tell the guy's heads in the game more. It's just, it's there. Hundred percent. It's crisper. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, anyhow, so that's that's about. There's not a lot of documentation on exactly what went on between those five years. But we do know what else was going on in the year 2005. Eric, can you tell me what was happening in the, the year of 2005? Oh, sure can. Sure can. Before, um, you, before you get to pop culture, though, what were you doing in 2005? Oh, 
Uh, Steve, you and I were uh, roomies in 2005. As we mentioned, we were all working at the record store, so we were all pretty good friends at this point. Living with our coworkers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we were, we, we were more than that by now. I, uh, um, you know, we were all we were all really good friends. We're lovers. <laughs> Hi, Margaret. <laughs> uh, she survived the episode about deliverance. She can survive this. <laughs> oh, um, so, uh, yeah, we lived with a four, we four dudes total living in this apartment. Uh, Mark wasn't with us, but we, you know, we saw each other uh, rather regularly. Um, he lived with his now wife. Yes. Yep. 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 He used to live with me before he lived with his wife. He did. Yeah, it was a great, there's a, there's a lot of living together back in those days. Between the years 2000 and 2005, there's a lot of just, right. just roommates here, roommates there that all worked at the, uh, the record store together, yeah. revolving doors. I look back fondly on this era. We had a lot of fun. I mean, we worked to uh, drink and go to shows, and it was a you know a typical twenties kind of time. It was it was a lot of fun for that time, in my opinion. Um, they were the party days. They were yeah, the these party were the days. days. The days. We all lived in Midtown. Yeah, all of us. Yeah, I believe this. I think Mark even lived in Midtown at this time. Uh, not at this time, no. Uh, we'll never. Yeah. I don't. I don't know Mark's life as well. Because the first time I went over to his house, he showed me. The song Echoplex. It's a good song. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. So I just do remember that. So, uh, and it was, a, you know, for me, it was like, you know, I'm not, I've never really done much with my artistic leanings, but I, I was filming uh, like web comedy episodes with Brian Strand, a friend of the show. I was uh, record, filming a huge movie called Just the Right Bullets, which Mark played a Werner Herzog meets uh, goth uh, uh, detective, and Steve played a cowboy meth dealer with a six shooter. And, uh, it's a classic movie. We really if weren't get, acting. If you ever get a chance to see it, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was. And it was, it was a kind of an artistic uh, boom, and I was like, you know, I was, I was uh, listening to a lot of music, and um, and it was, it was, yeah, like we said, we were discovering all sorts of stuff we didn't know about, kind of getting away from industrial, but listening to that too, um, and uh, that's and that's where I was. You know, it was definitely definitely a fun time. And then this album came when we were came out when we were li- living with four people. Then Steve and I. That summer moved together into the rat-infested uh, Fifth and T Red we Light moved, District. Yes, we moved into a house <laughs> at Fifth and T in Sacramento, which is a quadplex. And we later learned, due to an anecdote from my stepfather, that it used to be a whorehouse. Right, 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 and um, wow, and it was it was great. We moved in. We were so jazzed. A couple of bachelors out in the town. First weekend we were there. I went to a party and met, and not didn't meet, but hung out with the lady that would that I ended up marrying. So, poor <laughs> woman. Yeah, yeah. I hope she gets her sight back one day. <laughs> oh god. So, uh, so yeah, that's that, that's where I was. Where was where was pretty much told my whole tale. I think I worked at the warehouse by this time. I'm not sure. Maybe I still worked at Dimple. Who knows? You worked at the warehouse? No, not the not the warehouse. Oh, the warehouse. Uh, a warehouse. <laughs> not the warehouse, because no. the warehouse was probably gone by then. The warehouse was a music uh, record store that yes. was your Sam Goody style. Man, do you remember the one over at Roseville? There was some goth chick there that I had a thing for. Oh, yeah, I do remember. Um, where were you living at this time, Mark? I was living in the Burbs. Uh, me and Jen had got an apartment together. Uh, we had been together for now th- two years. And so, no, four years. We've been together for four years, dating for four years. And um, I didn't move to Midtown until you guys all left. Uh, I think I moved to Midtown when That's you were why living. We left. I know, seriously. <laughs> I think Eric was the last man standing. Um, him, uh, he was living with Heather at the time, his now wife. Mm-hmm. I was living with Jen. 
and you were in San Francisco. Oh boy. Um, I don't know who you moved down there with. It may have been one of your. I moved in there with uh, a decent ex-girlfriend, but she shall not be named. Gotcha. Um. So uh, yeah, uh, I when, when I this, say decent, I don't. Uh, yeah, that sounds wrong. No, no, no. Not like no. I'm grading on a scale here. I'm saying she's a good person. <laughs> good person, <laughs> I right? I, I got your drift. I hopefully our listeners did too. Um, so I remember before this album came out, um, I was actually managing uh, one of the record stores of the uh, chain that we worked at, and. Um, I was really budding up with the uh, the Universal rep at this time. Oh. Uh, I want to say his name was Mike. Um, and he knew that I was a pretty avid Nine Inch Nails fan. And the lead up to this record, uh, there was listening parties uh, set up at down in San Francisco. I drove two hours just to listen to this song or listen to this album. And, Different times, friends. Right. Um I want to say those club shows were before the record release. Uh, I'll have to do some research while these other guys are talking because I remember uh, then very soon after there was a show at the Warfield and uh, the Dresden Dolls opened up for Nine Inch Nails. They played two nights there. I went to both shows and um, Mike was able to... uh, swing it where I was able to go into soundcheck, uh, me, my, me and Jen and, uh, some other fans who won like a radio contest got to go watch the soundcheck. And then we were instructed to line up at the back of the Warfield, And, uh, then they walked down the row. Every member of the band walked down and, uh, shook everyone's hand and we got to have one thing signed. I got a poster signed and then Jen, she got a CD signed and the entire band, Signed everything, and it was cool. It's, I got to meet Trent Reznor. I got to meet Aaron North. I got to meet Jordy White, uh, Alessandro Cortini, and uh, Jerome Dillon. And uh, I got to watch Trent Reznor hit on Jen, which was pretty cool. <laughs> uh, he asked her name. Uh, she was very shy. A uh, guy next to me said, uh, try to put everything in context by telling him how old he was when Pretty Hate Machine came out. Um, and uh, Trent Reznor was not impressed. And uh, he also was trying to pass his uh, demo tape to Jordy White, and Jordy White looked through him as if he was made of glass and essentially kept on walking. It was great. Um, so I guess Trent wasn't married yet, or he was and didn't care. Uh, no, he was not married. He was not married to Mary Queen yet. So seeing your hero hit on your wife, you still, I mean, you think about that sometimes when you're doing stuff, right? <laughs> <laughs> it just validates it. Like it, for me, it's just like, man, uh, I, I definitely hit the jackpot, you know, like as you say, uh, hopefully we'll uh, have her regain her sight one day because <laughs> she's not in it for the, uh, for the laughs. I'll tell you that. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's where we were. Yeah. And, uh, actually, I guess. Let's just uh, when this album first came out, did you did you did you did you get it and like it right then? Like, yes, I did. Okay, I did enjoy it. Eric, I, how about you? <clears throat> the songs that stuck with me stuck with me, uh, but there were songs that were growers. It was not it was not a grand slam for me. I knew it was good, but it also wasn't you know what I liked about Nine Inch Nails, uh, which is an immature opinion. And I look forward to talking about that. <clears throat> I, myself, I liked it quite a bit. 
I didn't think it was the greatest thing of all time at the time. Uh, it is a grower. Uh, my opinion of it is just grown as years go by. But I did listen to it a ton because around this time, a girl and I broke up. And I drove down to the ocean one day and back and just listened to the album on repeat like the most mopiest son of a bitch in the world. And it was great for that. Yeah. So, yeah. Were you living in San Francisco at the. At no, no. Okay. So I lived with the Eric. Yeah. Wow. You drove all. What? Uh, you drove to the San Francisco. I drove Bay? to Point Reyes and back. Holy shit. And just listen to this record. That's mm. a good record. Could, I'm surprised it. it wasn't the Fragile or the Downward Spiral. No, because this just came out in the. You could have sprinkled in some Black Heart Procession at that point. I probably yeah. could have. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it's a, I, I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great album. Then we're going to talk a whole bunch about it. But after that. We're not going to get to it unless we figure out what else was going on in 2005. We've delayed it enough. I know. My God, what else was going on in the world? <laughs> yeah. So this is a pretty recent history here. Uh, world Series champions, Chicago White Sox. Yeah. Uh, Super Bowl champions. Ozzy Guillen. Super Bowl champions, New England Patriots. Uh. Ugh, right? I know. Um, our dear leader's favorite team. Uh, NBA champions. San Antonio Spurs. That's all right. We like the Spurs in this home. That's right. Uh, Some of the sex symbols from this time, Halle Berry. Uh, Beyonce is showing up here for us. Um, We also had uh, uh, Buffy, uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar, although her show had been off the air for about a year or two. Um, I've never watched an entire episode of that show. It's it's fun TV coming from a nerd. Uh, uh, You know. We can talk about that later. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, who else is on here? Uh, Charlize Theron is, is showing up. Um, Good old Charlize. That's right. Na- that Naomi- was for Monster, I'm sure. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Naomi Watts is, uh, is, is, is making quite an appearance on here because uh, she'd done, you know, this is a big, uh, big boom, boom time for her. She'd been in a lot of stuff. Kira Knightley is showing up. Um, Isla Fisher who I just uh, saw in a Rest of Development episode last night. So uh, a couple of the gentlemen, Terrence Howard. Hey, no, wait, actually, oh, I'm glad oh, you're doing that. Yeah. I was just going to say, these sex civil things never bring up men. Right. Yep, yep. Good. A uh, couple men. Uh, Terrence yeah. Howard from, wait, wait. Yeah, no, they're, the, the men list. Terrence Howard from Empire? Yeah. Terrence oh. Howard. Yeah, I think this is the was. This yeah, was the year 31. of this was the year of uh, the the hustle hustle and hustle flow. And flow. Um, Anderson, Empire's a great show, by the way. Anderson Cooper, uh, Justin Timberlake, of course, Joaquin Phoenix, and uh, Jude Law. Did you guys see that trailer for that Joaquin Phoenix movie, The Sister Brothers? No. It's Joaquin Phoenix, Jake Gyllenhaal, and John. C. Oh Ryan. yeah, no, I did. I'm sorry, no, that, that old western. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That was, was great. great. Um, so. It should be mentioned that the president of the United States during this year was George W. Bush, and his we'll talk big about that in a bit. We'll his talk about big quote of the year was, "I'm the decider." Uh, apparently, he said that a few times. So that's way less of a fascist thing to say than anything we hear now. <laughs> uh, and uh, I don't know why this is in there, but I always like a good Robert e- uh, Roger Ebert um, uh, little snark. Uh, Rob Schneider uh, ripped some critic for dissing Deuce Bigelow too, because the critic never won an award. And Robert Ebert said, "Well, I won in a Pulitzer, and I'll tell you, Mr. Schneider, your movie sucks." Deuce Bigelow. Uh, okay, so this is kind of interesting. Uh, Mitch Hedberg died, and they announced his death on April Fool's Day, and everybody. Thought it was a joke for a while, but no, he really did die, as we all know. Um, 
This I did not know. Actor Benedict Cumberbatch, who I don't even think Sherlock had started yet, but he was an up-and-comer. He actually was abducted and held at gunpoint in South Africa uh, for a while. That guy's had a crazy-ass life. Yeah, he has. Because just yesterday or within the last few days, he he stopped some muggers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, he was... (laughs) Single-handedly. He he eventually was freed. It was probably for ransom. He was eventually freed, and and, he learned that you... you, you, uh, Come to the world as you leave it. You're on your own. Uh, it made me want to live a life less ordinary. So, oh, and your boy Tom Cruise jumped on a couch this oh, year. Uh, yeah, Hopped up and down on that couch. Loved that's that girl. Where, Loved that dumb girl. Loved right on that girl so much that he had to jump on that couch for Oprah. That's what sealed the deal for Mark. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. speaking of Doctor, that's how you treat a lady. <laughs> you guys, you guys still haven't seen Avengers: Infinity, right? No. I haven't. Okay. Well, just. The album cover for With Teeth reminds me of the end of that movie. I'll leave it at that. Okay. And the reason I brought it up is because Benedict Cumberbatch is Doctor Strange. Ah. Yes. So this one is kind of funny. Uh, Sony got into a bit of trouble because they released 22 million new computers, um, but they put this thing in the computer that made it impossible for you to rip illegal, like download illegal music. But the code they used for that was open source. So they ended up having to like, basically, basically they used an illegal code to stop people from, you know, a stolen code to stop people from stealing music. So that was kind of interesting. Um, and you know, I'm sure there's a lot, a lot more in here. Uh, Oh, (laughs) Iraqi terrorists held a GI Joe action figure hostage and claimed that it was an actual U S soldier. <laughs> See, that's, that sounds like something that. Uh, it's something like Team part. America. That sounds like something the president would try to do now. Yeah. yeah. Negotiating tactics. Oh, yeah. Okay, so. Um, what are our TV shows? Yep, our TV shows. Got it. Big movies Star Wars, Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith. Oh, brother. Mark, what does that one rate? Um, I would have to say, uh, in. <laughs> In Star Wars release or in the uh, <laughs> or in the pantheon? The stale of quality. Because I did see Solo, by the way, and so did you. Yeah, Solo was good. Solo was good. It, you know, it was it was fun that it wasn't the end of the world for once in one of these movies. It was a it was a romp. Uh, man, it's uh, not really been liked by a lot of people, but I, I enjoy it. You I thought it was it was fun. It was so a good movie. It was fun. Basically, everybody that hated Last Jedi should at least like Solo. Right. I I don't know. Yeah. You just can't please everybody. But anyhow, um, but I would say Revenge of the Sith. Of the Sith the question. Uh, it is right below um, uh, Return of the Jedi. I'd have to say it is the best of the prequel series, um, but it is not as good as the new sequel trilogy. Killing younglings. <laughs> there is okay. Here's the thing with Revenge of the Sith. Um, it's hilarious uh, and unintendedly hilarious when Yoda walks in. And um, uh, fights the Emperor and sends him flying <laughs> head, head over heels. <laughs> Hilarious. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, but there is some, some emotional stuff, like Ewan McGregor uh, on the Volcano World. When you were the chosen one. God damn, man. That's a good, that's good. Like, uh, the, the only things that they should pull from the prequels, well, they already pulled one thing, and if you haven't seen Solo, I'm not going to spoil it for you. Sure. Uh, the other thing they should pull is that they should take Ian McGregor and make a Obi-Wan Kenobi movie with him because he mailed oh, yeah. out Guinness. Yeah. The uh, recent Marvel comics have every now and then they'll inter- intersplice uh, from Obi-Wan's diary from his, like, basically before episode four, which would make, that would make some great fodder right there. Anyways. 
Um, you know, I was talking to another Star Wars fan the other day, and they had mentioned that, you know, instead of a Boba Fett movie, like, that's been announced Ugh. by James Mangold. How boring. But what would it be cool if a Boba Fett, Obi-Wan Kenobi, and, like, a, another type of Crimson Dawn uh, movie was just one thing? Yeah. Uh, because I'm not going to spoil the end of Solo, but there is a cameo from somebody. If you've been watching Star Wars Rebels or Clone Wars, it's not that big of a surprise, but for the average moviegoer, it kind of is. Um, but that storyline could be folded into that next. Rather than just having a simply Boba Fett movie, it could be all three of those things. Well, didn't Boba Fett movie. know Solo before the Star Wars movies? Yes, I believe so. So their paths could even cross too. Right. Yeah. 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 Right. So, anyways, Star Wars talk. That's the, that's what you came here for. <laughs> uh, other movies this year, some great ones like uh, Batman Begins, which showed us Nolan's uh, vision of a comic book movie. You know, my my opinion of the Nolan Batman movies shifts all the time. At certain times, each one of those movies I think is the best one. Even yeah. Batman Begins. Yeah. Because sometimes the smaller scale Batman Begins. I think they did more with less. Yeah. yeah. And some other times I think that Dark Knight Rises is way better than anybody gives it credit for. And then there's other times where I'm just like, well, Dark Knight's just clearly a great movie. Dark Knight Rises has a uh, a weak third act, but yeah, I still think it's a great movie. Though. Yeah. 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 That's the cool thing about that series is, you know, parts of it mean more to you, depending upon when you watch it. Um, you know, some Harry Potter movies came out or one, uh, and then some garbage. Um, the band Garbage? No. <laughs> I, which I never told me what you thought about that. Uh, after season we, two. Which, yeah. Uh, uh, like, uh, oh, God. Oh, Chronicles of Narnia. Um, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Um, oh, oh, you know, actually, King Kong came out, came out. That was fun. I'm a big fan of the Peter Jackson King yeah. Kong Yeah. King Kong. All King eight Kong. hours of it. That's right. No. Thank you. <laughs> uh, Heartless. So, big shows. Oh, we're deep into... Uh, American Idol, um, the CSIs, CSI, CSI Miami. Oh boy! House, Doctor House, MD, Survivor, of course, is still on there. Um, and biggest song, "Drive It Like It's Hot." Pharrell and Snoop Dogg. Um, no, Snoop Dogg is actually the leading. He gets top billing on that song. Yeah. Um, Fifty Cent's "Candy Shop." Hey, Gwen Stefani's Stefani. Gwyneth uh, Stefani's uh, Hollaback Girl, um, which I believe is also a Pharrell production. It is. Yeah. So he was, yeah, he was, Pharrell was on fire. Uh, Kanye. Uh, well, Kanye. Uh, What's this one? Gold Digger. Oh, Gold Digger with Jamie Foxx. Yeah. Uh, this is that. Late registration. Late registration. You're right. His sophomore. Back before it all went so wrong. That's right. Scoopity poopity. So, yep. So the album we put out yesterday isn't that bad, but that, I don't. I, it's one of the few times where somebody's real life persona has totally shattered everything else for me. Yeah, it's gonna Can't, be hard to check that out. In a, don't want to. Uh, yeah. Unbiased view. All right. In five years, he says I was playing y'all no. about this whole era. Maybe, maybe. Uh, <laughs> no, no, that's no. true. It's kind of too annoying. It's even more annoying. <laughs> Did we talk about uh, this is America at any point in our last couple? I think we did. We did. Yeah. Oh, that's bad. Okay. <laughs> so that's what I got for you. If uh, we didn't call me up. We'll talk about it. That's what I got for you for 2005 that sets the stage. A lot of fluff out there. A At the time, a the pretty awful culture. president, but, you know, and he was bad, but the, it's gotten worse. And that, yeah, and in hindsight, at least, he, you know, he did start a bunch of wars and get a bunch of people killed that were still mired in. But at least he wasn't 
cruel. Yeah, he, he kind of let like let people live a little bit more than our current president does. But um, yeah, so that's where we were. Before we jump right into the album, uh, we're going to first get into the introductory Halo uh, single, which was The Hand That Feeds, Uh, but we'll be right back. So then in, in March of 2005, uh, the world was graced with the first single, Off With Teeth, a song called The Hand That Feeds. Um, and this was a huge, huge single. This one I think I may have heard on the radio even more than Closer, which I heard on the radio all the time in the 90s. I remember driving around at work and hearing this a lot. Um, uh, so... Uh, where were you guys when this album dropped? Like, do you remember hearing this the first time? Oh, the, the single? Um, yeah, The Hand That Feeds. The Hand I, I, For some reason, I have a vivid memory of hearing this song for the first time. And I was driving, I think I had that beat-up Toyota Corolla that wasn't sacrificed to the gods yet. When, uh, do you remember when uh, I went to San Francisco for the weekend and left the Toyota Corolla at Behind our old apartment. Somebody replaced the wheels with uh, cinder blocks? Yeah, they stripped it, and then there was a hobo living in it. Uh, somebody <laughs> threw a potted plant for the windshield. Oh, Anyhow, that hadn't happened yet. And I was driving around uh, downtown Sacramento near what is now the Golden One Arena. And uh, it was the, the, the came on the radio, and it was, uh, I, I think it was, if Quad 106 still existed at the time, I heard it on Quad. And it was so undeniably catchy that it made me laugh out loud in a good way. Right. Like, I couldn't believe they cracked the code of such a catchy song. Yeah. I, I just, uh, I, because it had been five years since the last song, you didn't know what to expect. And I was like, oh, they decided to write a rock song that just has a beat you can't deny and also makes you want to pump your fist in the air. It was great. It made me very happy the first time I heard it. Yeah, actually, I think the first time I heard it, I, oh, I just left the record store and started a new job at a group home. For sex offenders. Oh, <laughs> that part doesn't really play into the story. I just like saying it. Uh, but it paints a picture. But um, we always had the radio tuned to uh, to the alternative rock station uh, when that still existed here in Sacramento. And um, that's when I heard it. And, I, yeah, I agree, completely agree. I was like, this is a banger. This is a cool song. And they've kind of mastered pop and still kept their sound. Um, 
not totally reflective of the entire album of With Teeth. Uh, this easily could have fit on their next album or even not the previous album, but maybe even uh, an earlier album. Uh, but uh, not Fragile, but maybe one earlier than that. But it, yeah, it's a, it's, a great, it's a great single. And it was huge. Like I said, I heard it on the radio probably five times a day. Yeah, I'll touch on the sound a bit more when we talk about it in the yeah. context of the album. So um, during the break, I did happen to check my notes. And um, so when they went on their small club tour, uh, it was in March. So it was two months before the uh, album dropped in May. So the only song we probably knew was this one. That's right. So this is the first song that we heard from there. And it was, it, was, it was pretty cool when we saw those live shows because we got to see some of the new stuff live before we actually heard the studio version, oh. which was kind of fucking awesome. Yeah, that is fun. Um, but when I first heard this song, I, uh, I was at work. I, I think NineInchNails.com had a, a link. Uh, they had posted this video. Uh, the video was uh, directed by Rob Sheridan, who also did the album cover artwork. Um, He's a great graphic designer. He actually even joined uh, uh, How to Destroy Angels, and we'll probably briefly talk a little bit about them in a later episode. We'll do a bonus episode. Sure. Oh, well, maybe. No. I don't know. We'll, we'll give him a full <laughs> we'll dedicated. Give him a full. Never mind. Listen, we should handle Ben. Ben, does, or ben. <laughs> we already agreed we're going to do the full Monty for How to Destroy Angels. Yeah. Which will force me to finish those albums at least once. <laughs> Not, uh, I love that EP. That EP is really good. It's not like a root canal, Steve. No, they're not bad. It's just saying. Sure. Anyhow, um, so uh, yeah, the hand that feeds an incredibly catchy song. Um, if you think about it, like the context of how the singles were released on the Fragile, and then this hits you, it really is a straight up rock and roll song. Uh, very catchy. Uh, that drum beat that'll uh, just groove with you. Um, it's it's a great song, and the video for it that accompanies it. It's a live performance video. With a little bit of video effects, um, and zooming it, in, zooming out, panning from here to there, but it's it's kind of it's, yeah, it's just the band playing. Yeah, and it showcases the new uh, live lineup, yeah. which would be Jerome Dillon, uh, Alessandro Cortini, um, who's on keyboards and synthesizers, and sometimes he'll play guitar on some certain tracks. Uh, Jordy White, uh, or otherwise known as Twiggy Ramirez from Marilyn Manson, on bass and other guitars. No makeup, no dresses. Yep, just. Uh, and speaking of uh, kind of the style at the time, every member of the band essentially has the same haircut. Uh, it is that uh, shoulder length, bl- dyed black hair, parted down the middle. Um, it's just kind of funny. Uh, Jerome Dillon was again on, on drums and then Aaron North uh, on guitar. And uh, he was from the band Icarus Line. And uh, he definitely brought a different energy than Robin Fink did. He's yeah. definitely more in a kind of a more of in a punk rock kind of situation. Yeah. Well, we'll get into his playing a bit when we talk about the DVD a little bit later. Yeah. But uh, yeah, he was a welcome addition. It was interesting. He brought something new. He brought a sense of danger to the band. Well, I guess they were always dangerous. What am I talking about? But he just, the guy was a, a live wire. Was a live wire. Yeah, he was uh, all over the place. But I'm going to hand it back over to Eric, and then he'll talk about what other tracks were on the single. So we can save that for the remix roundup, because there was a, the, the single situation here was interesting. There was essentially three singles for this album, uh, and they all got collected on the final like CD release of the single, and we'll wait 
to get into it. But yeah, this one had a couple of 12 inch promos um, with two major remixes by uh, electronic artist Fotech and um, like. I'll call them Indie Disco uh, DFA, and both great remixes and both mini versions of those remixes. You know and, DFA is, right? Uh, Death From Above? No? Yeah. Murphy. Oh, right, right. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah, we'll go, we'll, go, we'll go nuts on that a little bit later. But uh, there was a lot that came out and in 12-inch promo version, CD version. Um, but, yeah, really we just wanted to say this, the, this first single had a huge impact on all of us. Um, and uh, then the album was dropped. But not... DFA nine was it other band Death from Above nineteen seventy nine yeah so I yeah so it wasn't Death from oh, Above so confusing. yeah it wasn't Death from Above then so DFA is just James Murphy then yeah okay so I that's my confusion Death from Above, uh, Death from Above nineteen seventy nine um, did get into a big old to do with James Murphy from DFA and Tim Goldsworthy they like suit each other and that's why they added the nineteen seventy nine yeah also and they actually opened up for Nine Inch Nails the Death from oh, Above nineteen seventy nine during this tour that nineteen seventy nine band had some good songs yeah it's similar sound too so. when I but I understand the lead singer he's off the reservation at this point like i oh, yeah. think I, I don't know if he's affiliated with the alt-right but i know that there oh, was Jesus. some right up in the av club that they were not so uh looked at fondly at this point uh, in their career when i had the, the, that small stint when i was writing articles uh for free uh, in trade for like shows and stuff with my buddy uh for vapors magazine they were terribly written but anyhow. Oh, man, that's right. I interviewed uh, Vast Air, the yeah. rapper from Cannibal Ox, for that one time. That was exactly. my one contribution. Yeah, yeah. You, get, you get what you pay for. But uh, <laughs> anyhow, I mixed. This is before the internet had all the information on it. I totally mixed. Like, I, I mixed up DFA records and yeah. DF, Death From Above as the same people. Ah. And uh, a representative from one of those camps was pissed off, and they, I got a talking to. Ah. So, like I said, you get what you pay for. <laughs> yeah, I'm not wrong. Uh, the Death from Above uh, guys, I think they did eventually when they broke up and then they got back together, they did drop the 1979, but they are part of that alt-right uh, group, the Proud Boys. Um, oh. you, if you've watched anything from Gavin McGinnis, who used to formerly be a founder of Vice, um, and just an all-around kind of, he's kind of a shithead. I'm not, I'm not for him. Um, but yeah, the, I'm not really behind that sort of movement yeah. I'll be honest well, well there you, you go there's another I had no idea I didn't plan listening to them anytime soon but we can file them away with all the other artists that are uh... burn those mp3s no, don't, <laughs> don't burn them to disc light them on fire <laughs> <laughs> alright so that was this single so the album proper came out next correct yep the album well they toured they toured which we all saw them on and yeah then they dropped the album okay and the uh, it's been a few years as we talked about and the album opens up with the fantastic track, All the Love in the World. Uh, all the Love in the World, that's right. So uh, did you want to drop a little clip in right now? I think this is the perfect time for all right. the Let song. Let me just all uh, get it ready. <laughs> <laughs> we all can right. all use a little love. So here we go. First track, All the Love in the World.
So all the love in the world opens up this album. And uh, I gotta say, this is a perfect album uh, opener. Because this album, I think, to this point, is the most uh, human Nine Inch Nails album you're gonna find out there. And uh, the, uh, the, uh, this is the album where, and I mean, what I mean by that is that, oh, it sounds so pretentious, but Trent Reznor seems the most, like, less robotic on this album. Uh, if I were to use baseball terms, vocally, this is the album where he, uh, sometimes when a pitcher takes the step, they say this guy used to be a thrower and now he's a pitcher. This is where Trent Reznor just quit, he quit being a thrower and he kind of mastered his craft vocally and became a pitcher. There's, he does a lot of tricks with his voice in this album that uh, just blows my mind. And the perfect example of this is the first track. He's showing off a little bit. Like, he took some vocal lessons. And, you know, and it's so cliche to say that, because he's sober now, that, like, he's all clear-eyed on this album. But I mean that in the sense that, like, yeah, there, nothing seems random here. He's, he's fully in control of what, he, what he's doing as a singer. Um, and he's showing off on the song quite a bit. Yeah. He's doing stuff that he kind of dabbled with. And so I, I'm thinking of like, so like heresy remixes where he does like a Prince voice and does some like high pitched stuff. He dabbled with it a little bit, but he's nailing it on this the song. Falsetto is all over this record. He's nailing it on the song. Counterpoint. <laughs> uh, this is not a good opener for the album, I think. Oh, my God. Controversy. <laughs> I do like this song. I think that this should not have been the album opener. This is, I think this song is a perfect album opener. This is Crossfire. Okay. Uh, <laughs> like, it start, like the, way, the, way it, uh, the way it starts off, it, it, it eases you into the water, and it, it tells you, this is not your grandpa's Night Nails, which I like. Okay. It's a very different song for Night Nails. I think it's good to establish that early. And the way the song has the, as it, as it as it goes through and you get to the point where they drop everything out except for the piano and then the the analog drums kick in. Yeah, I think that's the the groove really gets you into like the. It starts off as one thing and then it turns into this groovy, awesome, soulful, bombastic song. And for some reason, I think it's the perfect way to open up the album because it's just it's something new. I think album openers, though, generally, if you look at the album as a uh, cohesive piece of art and it, it, how it sets the tone for the rest of the record, uh, this song is uh, a little out of place. No, I, it's not. I do. Here, here, hold on a sec, because I, okay, so if we look at past releases, we look at uh, the album opener of The Downward Spiral, it opens up with Mr. Self-Destruct. Uh, then we look at the previous record, The Fragile, it opens up with Somewhat Damaged. I mean, it, it, they definitely uh, ease into the song and ease you into the rest of the album. But I really do think that this song, I would almost put either The Love Is Not Enough as an op- opener mm. or even uh, track two. Um, uh, but I just... I, the way that this song sounds, because it doesn't sound like a typical Nine Inch Nails song, it really does devolve into, like, a most Uncle Fun Times good time jam at the end. That's the best part of it. It is the best part. It is the best part. Um, <laughs> Uncle 
uh, the, the Uncle Good Time Jam is amazing. Yeah, like the overlaying of the uh, the multiple Trent Reznor's. Yeah. The why do you get all the love? Why do you get all that? That's all right. that's all amazing. Right. I I think you're both right. I think Mar- what Mark is trying to say is this does not embody what this album is at all, which makes which makes it a bad I opener. The crowd, I'm all alone. Oh. Later in this song, in this album. Steven, let me let me let me no, just. No, I'm, I'm interrupting you. <laughs> Hiding in the crowd, I'm all alone. This song talks about alienation. There are other songs on this exact album that mm. say being alone in the crowd. They repeat that same right, feeling. Right, right, right. I'm not yeah, saying... I've become a million miles, we're on I've, point. I've become a million miles away. It's talking about being distant and either be about drug addiction or just some kind of alienation, yeah. which is a repeating theme throughout this yeah. whole goddamn album. And you're saying, why do you get all the love in the world? <laughs> is he talking about everybody else getting all the love and he can't feel it? I don't think so. I think the, I think why do you get all the love in the world? You don't take that at face value. It's some kind of metaphor. But I'm telling you, look, all the jagged edges disappear. Yeah, shit bleeding through together. You can't tell when the line begins to blur because all these jagged okay. edges disappear. This is a perfect summation dear, of the whole record. Dear listeners, uh, I wish you could see this. Steve thinks he has an app on his phone that is a laser pointer. We could point to the lyrics because he is shaking his arm with his phone in his hand, but it's not pointing anything. Okay, so I think that... I've never been so mad about something I should be mad about. So this is a be- this is an awesome song, and I think lyrically you're 100 percent right. 100 percent right. That it, thematically, no thematically, it fits in sound wise. Mark saying it doesn't it doesn't work for an opener. It does not set the stage. And you are saying that because it doesn't set the stage, makes it the perfect stage setter because this is not a typical Nine Inch Nails album. Yes. Okay. So I can see both points. I see both points. So I just think it's so funny because I feel like this is like a top. Uh, like an all-time opening track. It's a great song. It is a great. I song. love. I love it's this good song. That we disagree no, once in a while. There is no denying. I'm just saying the sequencing, where it's at on the album. But come on, uh, what were the other two suggestions you had? Uh, love is not enough, okay, which they typically would open up shows with. Yes, that. which I find weird because that song's weird and like it's a good song, but it has like a weird pace to it. Right. And but then, if they uh, it, so uh, it, or even if they put, um, uh, you know who you are. Uh, as the opener, that's too that's too harsh, man. It is too harsh, but I mean, Mr. Self Destructor is not a walk in the mm. park, and neither was somewhat damaged. And so that's why I'm thinking that that would have set the tone a little bit better. This potentially could have been a little bit but lower they, in the album. And that's they've already done Mr. Self Destruct abrasiveness. I know, I know. They've already done uh, somewhat damages opener. That's why doing something that's a a soulful introduction piece makes sense to me. It's something new. I, I I feel you. I mean, I think this song is a cousin of uh, some of the later songs on the record, but as an album opener, when a lot of the whole uh, sound of this album is to be lean and mean, um, and this doesn't really say that it's lean and mean. It's well, more of like... Even, yeah, I'll even take it one step further. Sure. Another reason this song is perfect is that the first half of this song is very almost year zero-ish, electro-skittish. Yeah, and then midway through, it just drops out to piano and uh, live drums, which is the basis of so many of these songs on this album. And I think that's another and bass. And I think that also is another way of saying this isn't going to be electro fun time all the time. It's going to be a rock album to the point where it's just some of the basic elements of a rock album, and that's how the song closes out. And on top of that, we're going to dance around and groove and sing to each other. Why do you get all the love in the world? 
I don't disagree with Why Steve. Why do you get all the love? I, I love it. I, oh, the song is great. Yeah. We all are right. all in agreement okay. on yeah. that. Yeah, this is yeah. this is a the great song top is, 15 song, maybe even. It's a great song. It's, it is a great song. I, I okay. wish they would play it live, to be honest with you. They, they've never not played it live. Oh, yeah. I, don't I know just have I've never seen it live. Seen it I don't live. Think I have. Yeah, it's, not, it's a deep cut. I mean, um, I mean, it would have been proper for what was that tour with the backup singers? Oh, easily. Yeah. It would have been great. They probably did play it on They probably did. Yeah. I'm just more, I'm throwing the red flag on it being a good album opener. It's a great song. Sequencing wise, it's, it's let's say that you were first, uh, you know, you're a long time Nine Inch Nails fan. You put this on and it's just like, oh, okay. Um, different, but I like but it. But also to that, I think this is a great song for people that don't typically consider themselves Nine Inch Nails fans. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I yeah. I think this, this can convert somebody. This could show somebody that to this point just thought there were some uh, angry industrial band, which this whole album yeah. just throws out the window. This album is my wife's favorite Nine Inch Nails album. It's also my sister-in-law's favorite album. Yeah. It's but it's not because of the song. They actually like some more songs that I wouldn't think that they would like. Um, and all uh, Sunspots being one mm. favorite and uh, The Line Begins to Blur being another oh, favorite. Yeah. And... Um, you know, I, this song does, you're right, it eases people in who are maybe not familiar with Nine Inch Nails, but I don't think that it really sets the tone of this album. That's what I'm trying to say. It would be like opening an album with sunspots or something like that. Oh, it's, that's, it's, it's a different type I, of sound. I get what you're trying to say, but I think, right. I don't think it's that. So... Oh. Another thing to add, I mean, th- this, this song also has a very uh, clean sound to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost like, and just to go into Trent's head for a minute here, um, and I'm not even looking at the lyrics here, but just to go in his head, you know, the, you've, got, you know you got, you've gotten through rehab, you, you, your head's clean, you're, you know, the withdrawals are done for now. You look out the world, you've seen the world in a different light, and uh, it, it's clean, and it's almost... Um, like uh, sanitized, and then as the song goes on, then you realize, well, that's great. The anger is still there. How am I going to deal with it? And then the next song, you know, the guitars kick in. And they never leave us for the rest of the album. Yeah. So I don't know. I see. Same with the, and same with the floor toms. You know, the drums, the drum yeah. sound. It, yeah. it turns from it being very uh, uh, synthetic to right. uh, analog. The live right. drumming yeah. on this album makes the album. It's, it's and it is a bridge from their electronic. Past to what the rest of the album will be, also. Um, so I, I, I see both your points, and I'm not going to pick sides. I hate it when mom and dad fight. <laughs> so uh, the other performers in this album, besides Trent, is Dave Grohl, obviously, uh, doing the live drumming. Uh, there's turntables on this song. What? Uh, yeah, I don't know where they're at. Really? Yeah. Who's playing the? Somebody who's on the Wheels Alien, of Steel? Somebody named Alien Tom. Okay. I don't know where the turntables on are on this song at all. You're right, Alien Tom. Listeners, if you want to post a thing on the Facebook, let us know. Where the hell are these turntables that I can't hear? That's wild. I'm sure Greg will be on the case. Yeah. (laughs) So, okay. Well, some of us are wrong about our opinions. <laughs> then it goes into, all right, we're divided on all in love of the world. No, we're not divided on the, the song strength. I'm just divided on where the placement is. Okay. Hey, guys, all. just weird fan theory. What if Alien Tom is Blink-182's Tom DeLonge, Alien Conspiracy Nut? Just anyway, throwing that out hey, there. What if it's David Bowie and it's uh, Major Tom? <laughs> but then it gets into what I think is perfectly placed on the album is a uh, second track. T is for techno. (laughs) 
What's that? It's Alien Tom's website. Oh. T is for techno. You know what you are. Oh, which yes. is a perfect song. I believe it's played second live on this tour. It's a. Uh, I think they still play it live to this day. I hope so. It's a great song. Um, Should we drop a clip in? Should we? Uh, oh yeah, I'm getting ahead of myself. Please do. All right, let's listen to a little bit of uh, "You Know What You Are?" Question mark. I need to wet my whistle. What you are. Oh. A, uh, best song on the album. Best song on the album. I'd, so good. That's your opinion. That's fine. It's a great song. I don't know if it's the best song. Not the best song. Objectively, but it's my <laughs> favorite song on the album. It's definitely it's a very aggressive song. And it's uh it's like Starfuckers and uh, Wish had a child or something. But yeah, the melody and the drumming on this one are just outrageous. Thanks, Siri. <sighs> Alright, go ahead, Steven. No, so this is a, you know, Dave, Dave Grohl, really, you're like, oh, Dave Grohl's in this album. He really, he lets you know it on this song. Oh, yeah. The only Nine Inch Nails song with a double kick drum, which uh, I wish they would use that more Is it really? Yeah. They, they don't have one on, like, Wish or anything off Broken? Not not to that, uh, Wish is more of a... Yeah, no, I get you. I wish is four on the floor with a snare, snare going like crazy. The, okay. This is, this is uh, just the whole time going. That's why drummers are, are fit people. Yeah, you're right. The song is different. Yeah, good job. But uh, nah, it's uh, Eric. How do you feel about this this song? You're the one who likes it the most, right? I just like it so much. Um, and so when we get to um, when Steve and I fight later, and my and when we hear my rating of this album, the uh, the lack of aggression and, and noisiness uh, of this album, uh, you know, made it a grower for me and not an immediately like it. But this song right here is both of those things. Um, it's new. It's different, but it's also the Nine Inch Nails that, that that makes me feel warm and fuzzy. This is a great song. Yeah, that drumming, holy hell! The uh, the he's doing some of the best vocal work he's done with some really cool piano synth and all kind of hidden guitars. It's great. Yeah, I concur with that. I mean, uh, you know what you are. Um, it this is when I first heard the song. Uh, it it definitely made me sit upright in my chair, uh, based off the drumming alone. I always appreciated Dave Grohl's drummer. I really, really uh, fell in love with his drumming on the uh, Songs for the Deaf record by Queens of the Stone Age. Um, and 
this I was really excited to see that he was going to be drumming on here. <clears throat> and this song, as Steve just said, makes you know that he's absolutely participating in this record. This song has so much going on for it. It's got the pace, which is incredible. When the vocals kick in and uh, he's saying, you know, when the verse is going on, there's these weird like drilling sounds, which almost calls back to like uh, mine's terrible thing to taste mystery. Mm, you know yeah. what I'm talking about? Yeah. And then when it gets to the uh, the part where it go, you, don't you fucking know what you are? And that chunking guitar just crunch that comes in, mm. and your bass gets blown out. Yeah. And underneath all that insanity is that just bang bang down that piano melody. Mm-hmm. It's it, it's something, and it goes through that cycle two times, but then it it just keeps going with the drumming and. It all, it all drops out except for some strumming. And you just hear Trent Reznor saying, remember where you came from, remember what you are. And yeah. I think that's kind of a, you know, the some of the recovery talk of trying to get away from being, to trying, to, trying to remember yourself as a, as a person, not a, a bag of, a, of uh, addictions. Am I making sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that you're right on top of that. I think it, it was probably a little moment the of self doubt about any a Courtney Love or a, a past person. It's about Trent Reznor talking to himself. Yeah. You know. Yep. You know, he, he's yelling at himself. Yeah, I think that's actually um, 100 percent accurate. I mean, if you, uh, as he was probably going through his uh, rehab. Uh, you know, I, I have to say that this is a pretty clever record um, that he doesn't really put it out there that he uh, was going through this particular moment of his life by just making it. Oh, it's his rehab record. Mm-hmm. Um, no, not at all. You know, so I, I, we're using this be based off of you know what we know about what he was going through in his personal yeah, it's, yeah, life. Yeah, it's all conjecture. It's a, you but know, I think you're on to something. If you read through though. these lyrics, I think all, all these lyrics are they either come from a place about a person trying to get over the hump of addictions. Or trying to figure out the difference between reality and non-reality because you are uh, under some kind of intoxication. And also a lot of feelings of alienation. Yeah. And you, there's also a whole other flip side to this record where I think some of it's just about being trapped in cycles that either they are addictions or just the banality of life. And some pretty, I would say, subtle themes of, well, when you come into that clarity... And then you see a, it, it kind of like effed up society and government and stuff like that, and where that goes. They don't get into that too much. They get into that later, but there's a little yeah, bit of that in here. Closes out with that. Yep, there's a little bit of that in here. Great song. Great it's, song. It's a, it's a it's a solid track. It's a perfect uh, it's a perfect track too. Perfect track too, and I, I agree with you. I would not open up with this song. I would potentially open up with this song with a better intro uh, because, uh, you know, he likes to ease into oh, the album. That. I could see mm-hmm. that. Um, but instead of just like all of a sudden the, the pummeling drums, if there was a potentially a segue to that pummeling oh. drums, I could see this as a potential album opener. It's an attention getter. The chorus is so explosive on it. It's oh, it just, is. It, it just blows you, blows you on your ass. It's amazing live. I remember when we saw this before the album dropped, uh, it, it was something that caught my attention. You know, I thought yeah. it was a really good one. Uh, before this album was uh, created um, and released, 
Trent Reznor was doing a lot of interactivity with his fans on NineInchNails.com, and a lot of people were asking, like, what the potential sound of this song or of this album was going to be. Uh, people were saying that, you know, how much they enjoyed the song Burn, how much they enjoyed the song Heresy, and he was like, you guys are going to love the new record. But at this point, there was a lot of stuff, whether it was going to be called The Lathe of Heaven, because he was posting quotes from this book called The Lathe of Heaven. Then he was saying that it was going to be called Bleed Through. Uh, oh, I remember that. That was then changed because uh, over time, it was just not connoting the right inter- imagery. Uh, as Trent Reznor himself said, it was uh, it, 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 people were kind of making fun of it as if it was a tampon commercial. So that didn't stick. But and, when you when you listen to the album, there's a couple of points where you could tell why that would have been perfect title. Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, this the the the, the phrase "bleed through" is on a later song on the album. Um, uh, and like this was first originally written as a conceptual album, uh, as a uh, a person having to deal with multiple layers of reality, and uh, it kind of got scrapped and just became a you know uh, a structure about songs. And I think you're right, Steve. I think a lot of it was him working through some of his stuff with addiction, rehab, and or looking and back, back on, to it, the other on the side. other side. Yeah, mm-hmm. but uh, I mean, as fans, did we even know he was kind of going through that at that time? Oh. Not really. I mean, yeah. he was, he's definitely a very personal, private person. Um, you know, it's just stuff that gets picked up via puzzles. And, you know, I, he, there was a moment in on the Fragility Tour where I, I believe he had a heroin overdose and uh, he had to cancel a show. Jerome Dillon uh, stepped up and said that he... He was the one that canceled the show due to uh, stomach flu or uh, exhaustion in order to kind of protect Trent Reznor. Mm. Um, so there was some of that stuff going on behind the scenes. Um, it's just... Yeah, it, it's all it's all just conjecture and assumptions to a point. The guy's never come out and said exactly what he was doing when he was doing it. He's just said that I was, you know... He, yeah. used, he says drugs and alcohol... Uh, it, Thoughts of suicide at some points, and that he was clean during these years. And it makes sense. I mean, that's, that's kind of my point is that we didn't know it at the time, you know, that that's what he was going through. But it's it's come out, and especially like that, uh, was it Song Exploder podcast yeah. that you've turned us on to, Mark? I mean, he kind of goes into that for a different song off a different album. But, um, you know, the, clearly that journey is documented on this album. That's, you know, clearly what it's about. We just didn't know it at the time. This is definitely the most fast-paced and the heaviest song on the album. And uh, a little bit of a throwback to not the sound of Broken as much as the intensity of Broken. I would completely agree with that. That's, I think that's why this song, this song, this song warms me heart. <laughs> so that takes you in. Pirate voice. Yar. <laughs> that takes us into The Collector. All right, so let's hear a little bit of The Collector.
uh, fans. That was the collector. Um, and the, here begins uh, uh, Trent and the Resners, the famous side project oh, of Jesus. Nine Inch Nails, which takes up half this album. That's the stupidest thing you've ever said in this podcast. <laughs> How can, how can anything be a side project when it's all Trent Reznor? Listen, no, unless, not, it's, unless it's a band with his wife called uh, How to Destroy Angels. Right. <laughs> no, clearly these are made to be Nine Inch Nails songs. Lyrically, it fits on the album just fine. But there is a song that pops up on this, a sound, sorry, that pops up on this and a few other tracks on this album, which um, just don't sound, I just, they just sound like, uh, they do sound like a quick and dirty garage band side project. That Trent wanted to do that doesn't that doesn't totally fit to me, and oh, it's only a few, maybe three or four s- tracks off this album. But I would say this is the first one that is introducing that sound. It's very like laid bare, uh, you know, clean and simple. Uh, like you said, uh, what did you call it, Mark? Um, as lean far as mean. lean and mean, well, lean and mean rock. The collector aside, the collector's fine. It's probably my least favorite song on the album. That doesn't mean it's bad. But the collector aside, I would say yeah. That's because the whole point of the album was good songwriting and not dicking around in the studio for three years. <laughs> and that's exactly what this album is. So apparently this song in a fan interview said, uh, Trent Reznor said this was his favorite song off the album. And, uh, well, he has different tastes than we do. Uh, apparently so, <laughs> which is interesting because he also he, hates perfect drug, which is just, that's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, this song, uh, it has its moments where I'm uh, during the the chorus where I'm trying to fit it all inside. I'm trying to open my mouth wide. I'm trying not to choke uh, and swallow it all, swallow it all, swallow it all. Um, swallow it all. It's not his finest lyrics, but that part of the song, like I can deal with uh, up until he starts going with the swallow it all, because it just it seems the song just is very clunky. It just it comes to a kind of a dead stop at that point. Is Trent trying to do a little bit of that? Uh, was who's that guy that worked with Bowie that he used on Fragile? The little of the, the, oh, that. Oh, some of that. The cat plinky, the yeah. cat dancing piano. Yeah, a little the bit of plinky plonky. He does a good job with it. I mean, yeah. it works for the song. No, I. The drum beats okay. The 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 every last one, every last one. The outro part's all right. The song just doesn't do a lot for me. Yeah, I never really got into this song. Um, it was just one of those songs that I, I remember uh, hearing it for the first time and um, kind of smiling a little bit at the swallow it all. I was just like, all right. You know, if it wasn't so short, I'd usually skip it. But since it's so short, I just ride through it to the next song. And actually, the yeah. placement of this before The Hand That Feeds makes me just anticipate The Hand That Feeds more. Sure. Uh, what a disappointment for the sequel to The Ruiner, though, because it's, you know, it's a collector and an effector. Serving his shit to his flies. I'm sure that I'm sure that that was exactly what he was in is in his mind when he was putting no. the song together. No, it's not. It's actually not a terrible song. I I, I agree with you guys. But yeah, this is definitely uh, what I would consider the the first of the the side project trilogy. Um, but we'll get to the other ones later. <laughs> I have an idea of what songs those yeah, are too. Steve is giving me dagger eyes. Right now. Be infuriated because it's like you don't even. Steve thought this nails. was going to be a cakewalk tonight. Nails, man? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I actually see your point. I was thinking about this earlier that um, the songwriting is you know, pretty. You can just go listen to the Down Spiral again. 
I don't want to listen to it again. The the uh, Steve, the you make a good point that the point of this album is dedicated, impeccable songwriting. And maybe in the past where the songwriting wasn't there, he filled it in with some pretty interesting layers and textures and that might have been what initially drawn them to me. I don't disagree with your point. Um, however, some of these uh, very simple, like almost keyboard and sample free songs, whoa, uh, just, I don't know. They just uh, don't fit the uh, Nine Snails soundscape for me. Um, yes. And they're also the uh, some of the lighter songs on the album, like not, you, you uh, I don't know. So we'll get to the other ones and you'll, we'll see if you still totally disagree with me that, and that maybe I'm dissing an awesome song and I would feel bad if I did. Well, I don't know if this, <laughs> this isn't the song that I'm going to, this is not the hill I'll die, from, die on for this song, but this album is still has no, we'll, a ton of dense production in it. There is still the vocal effects up the wazoo. There's a billion different types of, uh, you know, I'm no, I'm not in the studio, but you've got plenty of synths and keyboards clanging around. This all this album is, it's a beefed up, better version of Pretty Hate Machine. It's just rock songs that are have a complexity to them, but they don't get lost up their own asshole. That's fair. I, no, that's fair. I mean, it's definitely done with a uh, bigger budget, bigger, better studio, and uh, more more experience. Um, I, I don't... I mean, also the best vocals of his career. Great vocals. Great vocals going on. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, uh, w- one of our uh, friends, uh, he wasn't much for this album. He was a big Nine Inch Nails fan, and one of the things that took him out of this album was the vocals. He was like, I just, I don't know... Uh, if I can get behind the vocals, they just take me out of the whole thing. And that was Sarab. And I was really surprised to hear that. You know, I thought that he would be uh, on board with this because he was a drummer and this album was very drum driven. Yeah. Um, but apparently it wasn't to his taste. Um, I guess what, I, what I'm saying is the side project songs are the ones that sound like vocals, guitar, bass, drums. That's all you get. And to me, Nine Inch Nails is, is bigger than that. There's always more going on than that. But this is one of those those uh, those kind of like three-piece band songs that, that doesn't fit the soundscape for me. But once again, obviously, clearly it's not a side project band. Clearly he meant this to be a Nine Inch Nails song. I get it. I I'm not saying that. The, the, the elasticity of the Nine Inch Nails, it can fit around anything to me. It's the, it's the man, not the sound to me. Yeah, that's Which is why I always yeah. thought it was weird on The Lost Highway he named those two songs after Trent Reznor. I was like, they're still Nine Inch Nails. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. All right, let's go to the next track. The next track is the leadoff single, as we talked about. Let's listen let's to a little bit. Let's see how we can fight about this one. Let's, <laughs> <laughs> let's listen to a little bit of The Hand That Feeds.
so that was the hand that feeds. Whoo! Steve, what'd you think of that song? Okay, so I, I know, is that a side project song, Eric, or is that one okay? <laughs> Clearly, it's not. I mean, there's those there's those deep minor key bass grooves, a little bit of fuzz on them. There's some fantastic synth and programming work. Uh, there's some there's some catchy hooks and uh, uh, and some uh, great uh, guitar licks. Man, there's some riffage. That's a uh, you know I'm sure there's some bleeps and bloops in there and uh, just the right amount of bug samples. <laughs> for me, it's a great it's a great Nine Inch Nails classic Nine Inch Nails track, sir. It actually has it has a a little keyboard breakdown that you can't beat, but. This song, as we discussed the first time we heard it, we were like, this is a this is a hit. And it is a hit. And it's impossible. Like, I never get tired of listening to this song. It's uh it's it, it's in constant if I if I make a nice nails mix mixtape, it's it's on there. Uh yeah, and this is also a pretty political song considering uh, everything else that Nine Inch Nails has done before. Yeah, um, they're going away from this album, even though a lot of it is the battle with the self, it doesn't have as much eye. Somehow, and this song is definitely a total step away from. This is a preview of Year Zero, the 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 content of this this track. I always actually, it's funny. Uh, the it opens up with a, "You're keeping in step in the line." I always thought the first line was "You're keeping us down." Um, I guess I, I just not paying attention to the lyrics, but the way the way this 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 song just starts once. That drum gets the, that that drum beat gets into you. You just can't get out of it. Yeah. Those opening lines. I mean, it's uh, it's pretty obvious. But with the, with your chin held high and you feel fine because you do what you're told. But inside your heart, it's black, it's hollow, and it's cold. It's you know. It, anytime you feel like um, you know, it's better to just go with something than to rock the boat. Mm-hmm. But you know, going with it means you're complacent or complacent to like you know or complicit to. Uh, to the bad things that are out there, you know. So it's very much like in today's political climate. Yeah, yeah. where it's just easy to be a white guy, right? And not say anything. Speaking of uh, vocals, I really love his vocal delivery on this song. Um, one of my favorite things is, "But inside your heart, it is black and it's hollow and it's cold." It's cold. Um, it's I, I love that the way that he delivers that line, and uh, the the choruses are great. Just how deep do you? I mean, everything about the song is is fun. It's uh, it's a great song. I mean, even though it's a politically charged song in terms of. What, uh, what Trent Reznor is trying to say, obviously, this came post 9-11 and during the uh, Iraq war. Um, and, you know, maybe sobriety got him a little more politically aware. Right. It's um, kind of like what I was saying about, you know, you finally look at the world with the clear with clear eyes and you're like, what the fuck happened? <laughs> I was high the, for the last 10 years. Yeah, the, the, the way he delivers, will you bite the hand that feeds you? That part always gets me. And then, and then to that... Towards the end there, with the with the, the the vocal effect they lay over the "Will you bite the hand that feeds you?" as the song closes out is incredible. It's yeah. heavily distorted. It sounds like a uh, Ultron is there. Um, it's it's wonderful, and for such a catch, like I I really like the fact that they released such a catchy song that had such a good message to it. You'll you'll be happy to hear I I was at work and um, I got canceled on, but I had to come back in a couple hours, and I was like five minutes from uh, Joe Vieira's house. So I just went over and hung out with him for a little bit. And he had just listened to this album and like conceded that like, he didn't like it when it came out, but he, it's like a really fantastic album. Yeah. I knew that was going to happen with that. 
and he said, uh, he said that, uh, uh, he said, yeah, you know, the thing when I first heard it, I thought he was, and this is why I made the comment before that he was biting LCD sound system a bit. Um, and this is one of the songs where you can kind of maybe hear the influence, but I think it goes both ways. I think there's been a dancey synthy quality with that fuzzy bass that Nine Inch Nails has always done that LCD sound system also used. It was, there, there was something mutually beneficial about yeah, that. And clearly there was a relationship because like you said, James Murphy handled some of the, uh, remixing situations for this song. So, but I do hear it in here, but I, once again, I think it's mutual. I think, I think they both got a little bit from each other. LCD sound system wasn't even that big yet in 2005. <laughs> no, but they were the DFA at that point was still a record label, and they were still doing him yes, and that, Tim that, Goldsworthy that, that punk disco stuff. Was yeah, a uh, thing. Yes. Uh, it's so a whole chick, yeah, chick, chick, yeah. yeah, definitely uh, a lot of cowbell and a lot of those songs. Um, I saw I saw LCD Sound System at a secret show underneath the Spaghetti Factory. Wow, that's amazing. Fool's Foundation. That's wild. Amazing. Yeah. Because I've only seen LCD Sound System once, and that was when they toured for their first record. Uh, they were self-titled. Man, yeah, I, saw them again, I loved right? it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. We saw them in San Francisco. Heather drove us to see them, and MIA opened. Oh yeah, that's right. You were there. I think Mark, you were. Mm-hmm. We didn't see you out in the parking lot afterwards. Sold out. Yeah. Oh, okay. Tickets. Not a, not a very contrarian opinion here. They're they're a good band. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, it's a great song. It's a catchy song. It has a message. It has a groove. It has that keyboard breakdown. The uh, everything about it, I'm a big fan. They were supposed to play this one live at the 2005 uh, uh, mus- or movie video awards on MTV, but uh, they wanted to put a picture, just a still photograph of George W. Bush behind them and play. MTV wouldn't allow it, and so Nine Inch Nails said, well, no thanks, and Foo Fighters then uh, filled in for him at that point. So there you go. Uh, also, Atticus Ross did some programming on this. I know he wasn't totally like integrated into the band yet. So yeah, I think he gets product. He gets credit for engineering a bit of this album. Um, so it's it, yeah, it's nice to see his his presence there, and he, it will only become more apparent as the albums go on. So yeah, Nine Inch Nails was getting woke before a lot of other people did. Right? Have we talked about This Is America yet? No, I'm kidding. It's <laughs> <laughs> the same year that uh, that Radiohead's uh, Hail to the Thief came out. It was the same year? Oh uh, yeah. Um, no, I'm asking. No, I don't believe um, so. Okay, okay. I can't tell because everything after Kid A sounds the same. Yeah, yeah. 2003. Yeah, I was gonna. What my point was gonna be that that was also about George W. Bush, yep. and this is a lot more fun. Could you imagine a, a Radiohead podcast? That would be. I'm still on the Radiohead uh, train. Uh, the last record was actually pretty How good. How would you sit down and talk about a whole Radiohead album? It would be. It would be. I, I'm just not as passionate about them as as I used to be. Um, but. If you caught me in the Kid A years, easy. Easy. Now, eh, they're just releasing records. But I would say this, uh, okay, Uh, our co-host Eric Anderson went and uh, recently saw Depeche Mode the other day. How was that show? I'm sorry, I interrupted Mark because I do. Oh, I was just going to say, in terms of Depeche Mode, um, I'm not that into Spirit. I'm not that into Delta Machine, Mm -hmm. but they're still a strong band that I would love to go see. And I would agree, but I would say the top three Spirit songs are going backwards and where's the revolution and then another one i forget the name of and they played those are the only three spirit songs even though it's called the spirit tour those are the only three spirit songs they played so i was happy i think those are great songs yeah, everyone is i think are, when we saw exciter and they played like half that album is it exciter or is it exeter whatever i don't know i don't know i think exeter is a cool name cooler name I but it's exciter. i think way, you're probably right yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, uh, but anyways, it was a great show. Um, it was huge. I hadn't been in the arena yet to see a show, and it sounded the amazing. The Golden One Arena? We were all the way up top. It sounded amazing. Um, and uh, Dave Gahan can belt it. He, he sings very well. They gave uh, they gave uh, Martin his ballads. He still got his three ballads to give yes. Dave a break. <laughs> but you know what? Their version of Home was beautiful. Was awesome. No, they did a great live Home's version. Actually, great. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Home, Question of Lust, and uh, question of, was the Question of Lust somebody. Yeah, I think you got it. And they played Question of Time too, which is, was, oh, was right. very surprising. It's just Re-re-re- a question of lust. Yeah. yeah that's all. Oh. <laughs> fragile. Anyways, boom. But, but they home, home, they home. played the hits and I love home. they a good song. and they and they played the hits otherwise and they played like three or four songs off Ultra, which was very cool to hear to hear good those. Record. And they had a cool like uh, bridge over the stage that Dave would just go up and go crazy on. I mean, he's got moves. He's he can hit every note just like he always did. It was awesome. Uh, great, yeah, they had a great live band. It was two keyboards, Martin on guitar and, and backups, Dave prancing around, and then uh, a drummer. And uh, yeah, it was fantastic. It was it was it was a good show, and I'd never seen them before. So, anyways, yeah, no, uh, yeah they're great. All right, so uh, we're talking exclusively about Nine Inch Nails, as you can yeah. see. Um, so we're gonna go to the next track, unless we've uh, done all that you can on Hand That Feeds. Uh, I think uh, I think we did it. it. Well, we already expressed earlier how excited we were the first time we heard about it. We talked about the bleeps and bloop keyboard solo, and there's some uh, remix stuff coming up later. Yeah, no, it's just it's a solid track. I, it's in the it's in the set list to this day because you can't deny it. 